Hey guys, and welcome to episode 245 of Built on Passion. I'm your host, Matt Delabono, and today we have on Terra Firma's founder, Allison Barnard. Allison is what she would describe as a serial entrepreneur, and I don't think anyone would argue otherwise. It's safe to say that when Allison comes up with a good idea, she follows through, and that is very much the case for how she started Terra Firma. Disaster is something that touched her personally, and when we get going with the episode, you're going to hear that story. It's, it's pretty powerful. In fact, it was ultimately the catalyst for her creating Terra Firma's disaster deck. But for her, it wasn't simply a matter of creating a product to address her experience. She took it all the way. I mean, talking to countless disaster experts, making sure the most common natural disasters were addressed fully and completely. One of the more remarkable things that Terra Firma covers is how to handle these traumatic situations on a psychological and emotional level. That's something that was extremely important to Allison when creating the Grab and Go Kit, and something that she didn't find any other disaster resource really included. In fact, it was exactly that missing component that made her say, yeah, I can do this better. In this episode of Built on Passion, Allison Barnard shares why she started Terra Firma, some of the obstacles she faced and how she overcame them, and how she added a new element to what it means to be prepared for a disaster. And with that, I give you Terra Firma founder and serial entrepreneur, Allison Barnard. I hope that at this point, it's no secret that Oregon on some level is known for amazing beer. Yeah, I would be, I, it would be, uh, it'd be weird for someone to not know. Well, I mean, I suppose if no one is a beer drinker, if someone's, you know, yeah. never drinking beer, of course they probably wouldn't know, but yeah, it's really, um, it's been a, a cool industry to see grow so tremendously on the heels of Deschutes rising up yeah. here and really cool. It's, it's funny. I had um when I was in uh in college, I had um two Deschutes beer posters. What did you well, have? I, I, Wait, let me guess. 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 Black Butte Porter and Mirror Pond. Yeah, but I, I cut off the beer thing because I was like, I don't want to have a beer poster. That's like <laughs> stupid and cliche. You just wanted the art. So yeah. <laughs> But like, still, like I, for a while, I forgot that it was the shoots and I was like, oh yeah, I did that. And, and I was like, all right. The Mirror Pond art, they're famous for it. They redo the label every year. They pick a different artist every year to make the label. And, um, it's a really, it's really cool when it comes out. Wait, not Mirror Pond. It's not Mirror Pond that they redo every year. It is. Oh crap. Those were the two, those were the two that I had. Were they the two? You, you you did yeah you did nail it like that That's was so funny because those were the things. That's what they were. That's funny. But also, I know we basically did begin. Also, hi. Hi. Well, Allison, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Um, Thanks. For I having am. Me. Yeah, of course. I I guess to to start this off before we we get too too far out uh, in the weeds for the listener who is unfamiliar, who are you? Who is Allison Barnard? So, um, I am a 
<laughs> serial entrepreneur. <laughs> I have the bug. Um, and I'm a mother and a wife and I live in Bend, Oregon. And, um, I started a business called Terra Firma. Um, we launched almost two years ago, but it's been about mm, four, four and a half years since the idea. And, um, I do it full time, but I also, as we just talked about for a minute, um, that the listener might not hear about yet, but, um, I'm starting a podcast as well about other women founders and what is it about someone's personality and mind that allows a business to create itself and manifest itself, I think is such a cool thing to talk about. So yeah, that's me. Were those were those independent things, Terra Firma and um, she founder? Yeah. So, well, yes and no. Okay. So, I I worked in music for a long time. I had a syndicated music program that was on NPR affiliates, and I was a music director for an NPR station for a little bit. And um, music has always been in my life and been in my blood. Every family member of mine is an professional musician. And, um, but then I grew up as a kid who did not like the spotlight at all. I didn't want any eyes on me. So a radio show was absolutely right in my wheelhouse. So I did that for a long time and I produced it myself. And so I got, I got all of this experience, um, being able to kind of be this invisible presence, um, a voice that people heard that they liked hearing, it seemed. And, um, and then when terra firma became an idea, I realized, oh man, this is going to take all of my time. I have to stop doing the show, which was called modulation. So I gave up the show very reluctantly and pretty quickly I was getting feedback from people saying, you know, you should really be documenting terra firma's evolution and maybe you could do a podcast because we miss hearing your voice. And then people who knew me personally, who know that I love people, I'm fascinated by people specifically, I'm fascinated by why we do the things we do and why we don't do the things that we don't do. And I think that the the people who trusted me in my life, who really enjoy the kinds of conversations that we have, felt like this, you just need to be on a podcast so that people can hear this part of you that is no longer really present on the air. So as I told you in our conversation, I had, this had just been like, people kept saying it over and over again for three years. My massage, my friend who does massage therapy, she was helping me with a leg injury. And she's like, you know, you should really have a podcast. Like, I just really love hearing your voice. And I'm like, man, this is just, and then you said it. Yes. In our conversation, you were like, have you ever considered a podcast? And I was like, oh my God, it just kept coming. And it made me think, okay, I, I need to take a deeper look at this because if this is something that I excel at, then a, it will help Terra Firma because I'll be talking about my own experience, but it's also just something I love. I love talking to people authentically and I'm not an extrovert. I'm an introvert. And so a podcast is kind of like this really cool way to get to have really thoughtful, interesting conversations in the comfort of my own home 
and be able to have full control over production because I can do all of it myself. And, you know, maybe be able to share with the world some of these amazing women that have come up with these really, you know, it's not even that they're cool ideas necessarily. Sometimes an idea is just like a simple little thought or a simple little solution. And then it just snowballs and you're like, oh my God, now I have a business. What just happened? Yeah. So it's so interesting to talk to founders because some of them are identify as introverts. Some identify as a mix. And some people constantly have to have a business and some people are completely reluctant in being founders. And I think it's so interesting to hear how a business manages to manifest itself in spite of or because of whatever the personality of the founder is. That's so interesting to me. For starters, on you having uh, your own podcast, it, it almost it it does make a ton of sense. I mean, you you're good at what you love. Typically, one is good at what yeah. they love, and you yeah. love talking to people. And talking to people, like communicating, is not just an inherently easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Just by loving that thing, you've had practice because I'm sure you talk to people. Everyone talks to people in some degree, but mm-hmm. because you love it so much you've gotten good at it. And that, that was the takeaway on the phones. Like you're, you're good at talking and it's, it's not just a thing that everyone's good at. It's also that, so a lot of people are good at talking. What's really fun to find is someone who is good at talking by connecting. Like mm. you felt a connection to me immediately. You felt set at ease. That's feedback yeah. I've gotten my whole life. That's Pe- a gift. Well, I think it's, I think it's that I just think people are so interesting. I'm, and we have so much in common. And one of the things that um, I, we talked about in the very first episode with my guest, um, or the, the first episode I've recorded anyway, was how COVID has done this crazy thing for me. Because, because I'm an introvert, I don't love going into really busy places, but I do all the time. And part of the way that I move through a place like a grocery store comfortably is by smiling at people and saying, hey, how's it going? And I live in a really like sweet, small, t- smaller city, big town. People are known for being very kind here and welcoming. And that's just something that's natural to me. I love I don't like to strike up a conversation with a stranger, but I just like to be the person who's like, hey, hi," and just say, good vibes. Yeah. And the second that mask went on me, it did two things. The first thing was, is it gave me anonymity, which I love. I love being able to go out into the world with anonymity, which also really got me thinking about how many celebrities must love that they get to wear masks out in public all the time. But the other thing it did is it completely hid my smile. And I don't happen to have eyes that convey my smile. The way that some people like they smile and you can totally tell just by looking at their eyes. So I feel really uncomfortable. I feel more uncomfortable going into grocery stores now than I did before because no one can tell that I'm smiling at them. I kind of get that. I mean, it's you communicate with your eyes just as much as you do verbally, right? Mm -hmm. It's like part of body language or at least to some degree. You can, but your facial structure really relies on your smile for people making sure that it like, it's almost like if somebody smiles, 
you, you, your brain says, oh, cool. That person's smiling at me. But then you look at their eyes and you can tell whether it's BS or not. You can tell whether it's a genuine smile or not. And I, it's kind of been this interesting loss for me to not be able to go out into the world and have that part of me be obvious to strangers that I'm kind and I'm warm and I'm, I'm, I am, I don't know. It's been really interesting. So I think that part of what makes me work in a conversation with people is that they kind of automatically feel like, oh, I'm having an authentic conversation. This is not surface level. I'm not going to be asked questions like, so what do you do? And are you, do you have kids? And where do you live? And like all this data collection. I'm more just. You're know. curious, yeah. but like in a, in like a constructive way, not just in a, you know, take it apart kind of way, like yeah. the, the why. Yeah. That's actually, that's something that you told me that I, that I was the big takeaway from our conversation. Like, you know, like you're asking about someone's why it's more important than the what, I mean, in the context of, you know, what we were discussing, uh, terra firma, like that, that was, you, you gave me the why, and that was the kind of set it off and was like, Hey, like, you know, let's do. Let's do a podcast. Well, when you can when you can ask a founder their why and it doesn't feel like they're telling you something that they've said a hundred times because they've had to pitch or because, you know, they've had to kind of as quickly as possibly and as effectively as possibly explain their business. Um, when when the gift of the podcast is that you release that pressure from the founder and you give them the space to really fully tell you the story. And every time that you start a business, a lot of times, if you know you have a consultant helping you launch, a lot of times when you start, they want you to figure out your true north or what's your story or what's your why. But they ask you to refine, 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 because most of the time they're thinking of it in terms of you having to pitch it effectively with a very small amount of time. And your ability to connect with people and give them time with the why is what makes listening to your podcast. That's what will make it really interesting because people just by saying, I'm going to listen to your podcast or saying, I'm going to give you this time. You know what I mean? I, I, yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think even more pointed at um, when it comes to like businesses with like a physical thing yeah you know it's anyone can make a bike or you know skis or you know snack bars or whatever but they're the reason behind it is ultimately the thing that is gonna you know get people interested in that because you're not in today's day and age it's not just buying things it's there's always more and it's good like there there needs to be more because a business isn't just so Mm self-contained um and I, I mean, that's how I look at things, um, especially from like a sustainability perspective, because that's something I personally care about. Yeah. Um, and we want to just relate. You do that because you yeah. want to relate to the thing that you're investing in. Totally. You know, and investing. Yes. Yeah. Like that's anytime it. you spend your money, no matter where it is, you're making an investment and it's, it, it could be made somewhere else, but you're choosing to give it to that. And marketers more and more especially with founders have really had to push founders to get good at telling their story really good and figure out what are the parts 
Because when you're the founder, it's just every moment, every second of what happened in that retelling of the story is of value. There's always some tipping point in there. But sometimes as a founder, it's hard to determine what points in the story will add up to being really valuable to the consumer. Yeah. It's hard to get that distance from that. So, I mean, this is, this is probably the, the, the perfect segue. Um, and I, I don't just want to say, what is terra firma? Because I know that there is a story, like there is a, a very specific why mm-hmm. that became a, a, like a series of events to lead you to say, I'm going to start this. Yeah. Would you mind uh, for the listeners sharing that story? Telling the story. Okay. So, um, so I was at home here in Bend. This was, I feel like five years ago. And there was a wildfire in the summer that broke out. It was called the two bulls fire. And my in-laws were driving into town to visit us and they could see these two plumes and they called and said, Hey, do you know there's a wildfire? And I was like, what? So I got in the car and I drove up to the top of the hill that we're on. And I looked and I thought that looks too big for me to ignore. And I was, I was concerned in the way that you kind of like when you when you have a dis- a potential disaster that gives you time to consider it, you kind of take a second to be like, you you kind of have to gauge how serious it is, and it's hard to gauge it. And so I came back down the hill, and my in laws came over, and my husband was gone. He's an engineer, and he was away at work. And I just kept driving up that hill. Every couple hours, I'd go up, and then I'd come home, and I'd get on the computer, and I would look up like. What's the wind direction going to be? Are we going to get embers on the hill and the whole place is going to light on fire? How do I evacuate effectively? And I'm, I'm going on all these websites and I was getting more and more pissed off because I was like, oh my gosh, everybody is saying something slightly different. There's way too much information. Why is this organization or this governmental agency putting the critical information that I need right now on six different pages that I have to click through? I was... And the the entrepreneur in me, who's always thinking about how people receive things, was like, this is so stupid. Like, I'm not preparing right now. I am, I am in a real-time event. I'm reacting right now. And they're making this really hard for me to react effectively. So fast forward, the two bulls fire, it, it got a little out of control, but they took control of it. And I remember sitting down and thinking, this is so interesting. I am a planner naturally, and my husband is an engineer. So he naturally works worst case backwards. And we know we need to prepare. And yet we haven't done it. This is weird. That's weird. <laughs> I remember just being like, this is really weird. And my father in law was an associated press writer for, I think, 34 years. And he had just retired. And I remember thinking, he writes all these stories. He writes about wildfire. He writes about earthquakes and Cascadia subduction zone. And yet we still haven't gotten ready. This is so weird. And I thought none of my friends have gotten ready either. Some of them have water. I know they haven't gotten ready and we all know better. So what is happening? There's some psychology to this. So it just got me interested. And the more that I started to look at the psychology of it, I just realized that organizations and governmental agencies have a lot of red tape. Things take a lot of time. And 
they they aren't necessarily able to create products that are able to overcome people's psychological resistance to getting ready. So I started with that. I knew I just wanted to make a product that would do that. And then I started to look at scenarios like, like Santa Rosa happened not too long after that. And I thought, God, these people, they didn't get their emergency alerts. The power was out and cell towers were starting to go down. So they literally had no way to be notified other than a sheriff coming to their door. That to me is the ultimate nightmare situation. And I thought, what would I have done? I would have grabbed my phone and tried to figure out what to do. I would have hightailed it if I had known how close it was. But if you misjudge and you think you have time and you get on your phone and you start to try to figure out what to do, that's critical time that could be lost. And I needed to make something that was resilient for that moment. So it had to be on paper. It had to be something that was waterproof and pocket-sized and lived on the shelf in your house. And the business just kept revealing itself to me as I was problem solving in real time and putting myself in the place of the consumer. So over time, it turned into, okay, I need a guidebook that's going to walk people through how to prepare. And I need to design it so that it keeps people engaged so that it helps them overcome their resistance. And then I need action plans that tell people what to do in a real-time event. So they'll grab it, they'll read it, and they'll know exactly what to do. I need to have accessories so that if somebody, I kept thinking about my kid and I was like, God, if we left and for some reason we got separated, how would I get to her? How would I find her? So I made emergency wristbands that you would have and all these different accessories that can help you in a real-time event and for preparing. And then I made the disaster deck, which is this fan deck that lives in your car and it tells you what to do during any disaster in the US if you are in a vehicle or if you're outside. And we made it, we designed it, it was ready to go. And then paradise happened. And I just remember, I remember sitting at home watching what was happening and thinking, okay, my product won't help any of those people. How do I, like, if I, if I wanted them to have something with them that would help them now, what would that be? And that's how we created the recovery plans. So Essentially, what I did is I said to the team, okay, we need to not listen to FEMA and Red Cross and all these community, these organizations and governmental agencies that are saying how to recover. We need to listen to their input. But what we really need is to listen to the victims right now and listen to what they say they need. And so based on that, we wrote the entire recovery section for the guidebook, which walks you through everything that you would need to do if you lose everything, or even if your house is just smoke damaged. But most important, we, with a trauma therapist and me as a life coach and some disaster experts, we wrote all of the content for how to emotionally recover and just kind of stay in a zone of being able to problem solve and not being overwhelmed by trauma, essentially. And so there's an action plan that's called the Be Well Action Plan, and it walks you through how to do that. And then there's the entire chapter of recovery in the guidebook that walks you through how to do that. And then there's also a be well card in the disaster deck that helps you do that. 
So essentially what I realized once I'd done all of this and we were getting ready to launch, I realized, oh, I just made a holistic product two ways. It helps them before, during, and after, but it also helps them physically, intellectually, and emotionally. And as soon as I realized that, I was like, okay, we can launch it. Now I, now I feel really good about this because if somebody buys this and they are not at all a planner, that's okay. If shit hits the fan, they can go grab this thing and it will help them. Or if they don't have time to do that, they can get the recovery stuff and that will help them. And it just kind of became a product that was resilient to the emotional resistance of the buyer in a way. It was like a product that was like, look, you don't have to touch me ever. But if at some point you decide this is the only thing that you want to focus on, I'm right here. I think there's there's a couple things that you that you said when we were talking uh, initially the first time, um, and one of them was I, I this just stuck with me because I thought it was a really cool way of putting it. But it's a uh, like an emergency prepared kit to meet you wherever you're at. Yeah, and like I it's it's applicable for in terms of like physically prepared or mentally mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. that was just like to me like seemed like okay like i get this and even if you don't get it you'll make it into whatever it, that means to you yes um, and then the the other piece that i i thought made a lot of, first of all like i don't i really don't think that there's anything like this there's emergency prepared kits but those are like yeah. backpacks or whatever yeah gear based yeah and like if if like a a log that's on fire if like something collapses and like that's you, you're you can't get to that then you are then that means nothing too so like mm -hmm. this thing information is so powerful the things that people can do with information is incredible like when you feel like you know what to do it's amazing what you can accomplish but when you know, gear, gear has an incredibly value place in preparedness and reaction and recovery. It's really valuable, but it's only one component. Like I, my instinct is not to go and get gear. My instinct is to go grab my kid. If there's an earthquake, it's to go find her and make sure she's okay. Right. And then my instinct is to check in with my husband and put our two very unique problem solving abilities together and teamwork problem solving things. And if we have a guide that tells us you need to do this, 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 and this, it allows us all of this space to have energy to problem solve all the crazy stuff that's going to come up on the fly during a disaster. And that's so much more valuable than having that one type of water bottle. Like, <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because it's at some point in my problem solving, I need that one type of water bottle and I'm glad I thought about it, but it's always made me worry when companies promote their survival gear as a one and done step. And a lot of companies have figured this out or already knew it and are doing a much better job at including content and saying, you know, this is just step one. You also need to do this and this and this. But too many aren't because they're trying to make a quick dollar. And that is something that I feel is misleading the public a little bit because, gosh, like, it just. Could you call it fear mongering? Well. That might be a stretch. Well, okay. Yes and no. So this is a fine line for a lot of companies and it's tricky. Like, 
um, with any sale, your, your customer has to be primed to make the decision to make the purchase. And when you're a company that generally has a fear, it has customers in a place of fear, and that's why they're looking for you in the first place, you want to solve their problem. It doesn't mean that you necessarily want to scare them more, but you want to solve their problem and you want to be there when they're looking for you. But some companies do help you with the fear a little bit, and they post lots of scary news ads, and they, par- they post um, feel fearful verbiage. And that was something very early that was a concrete rule for Terra Firma. I said, we will never, ever, ever scare our customer into making this purchase. And I have gotten so much pushback from that for years from other, other owners, um, people who are really just saying numbers are what matter. Like your company won't make it if you aren't selling anything. And I'm like, well, yeah, but do I want to own a company that is scaring the shit out of people? No, I definitely do not. So it's always been a value for us. And I think because of that, it's made me a little more prone to noticing when companies um, use that tactic a little too much. And it worries me because when you do that, you're putting someone in a in a heightened fear-based conversion funnel. And then you are essentially selling them something that gives them a relief of that fear, that heightened fear, and it gives them a false sense of security because it's such a big change between their level of fear and how much better they have they feel having the product. It gives them the sense that that's enough. And it's not. You have to meet your customer if you're going to do this really well. You have to meet your customer understanding that I believe ethically part of what you need to do is really educate them holistically on how to be prepared. If you're going to have a company that's about responding effectively in a disaster, you at least need to tell your, cons- your customer that this is one part. It's not all of it. Does that make sense? Totally. I mean, it, it's it's almost justified in the fact that that's something that you believe because at the end of the day, like, you know, there's definitely people out there of the same mindset who also are worried and focusing on the same things. I mean, obviously everyone on some level should be caring about like, um, I guess like the emotional mental recovery of uh, a disaster and like being prepared in that way. But by even you going out and creating this, you'd be pretty hard pressed to say that you're the only one who could get value out of this. Yeah. And it's like an easy thing to just like, you have it, you'll know what to do. And it's better than just having like, this is actually another thing. I feel like I'm going to reference our, uh, yeah, good. You should. Cause our first conversation, we were like, shoot, we should have been recording this. I know the other thing that, uh, was like a big, a big thing is you, you don't include physical gear because Mm -hmm. that's a personal thing and you need to know how to work it. And I thought that was really smart. I've seen um, survival kits where I'm just like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I wish I could use that to figure out how it works. But if I do it, then I use it and it's done. So this is a psychological thing. When So I'm a gearhead, right? Like, I've been an outdoorsy person my whole life. And so gear matters to me. The thing that happens when you buy a kit is you're kind of like, unless you're already a gearhead and you understand how important it is to know how your gear works. Like, that's really important. 
If you don't already know that, it's super easy to just be like, sweet, I have everything I need if anything goes wrong. A lot of people don't think, oh, wait, I don't know how to use it, though. Anytime that we make an, in, an individual purchase on a piece of gear, the second we get it, because it's one thing that we're buying, we have a, a more vested interest in understanding it and valuing it. And so we're going to learn how it works. And we're really going to check it out. We're going to take a minute. So for us selling gear, not only because that whole industry has really changed as far as its wholesale model goes, and is, it's gotten really complicated and muddy, but mostly I just wanted people to understand, you do not have to buy a crappy kit of gear that costs less than $50 and has, quote, everything that you'll need. You don't have to do that. And you also don't have to invest in a $3,500 box of stuff that is badass. There is like no questioning that that gear is awesome. And I would buy all that same gear over time. But there's a, dis there's a disassociation that happens when you do that. And what's more important to me, again, was to meet people where they were at. I wanted people who always get their gear at REI garage sales or through friends swapping or online swapping or buying things used. I wanted them to be able to feel like they had just as much of a chance of being fully prepared as someone who already has a ton of gear and just needs to look at their camping gear as survival gear sometimes and vet it or someone who has a crap ton of money and is going to go out and buy a lot of stuff that they've personally picked out because they feel like it's what they feel com more confident having. I think that it's really um, in a crisis, the gear that we pick becomes so consequential. Like if I had a, if I had an earthquake here and I went out and I looked at a bunch of really crappy gear, I'd be so pissed at myself. Somebody who doesn't understand gear or doesn't normally have gear, they might not even know that they are relying on something that's lower quality than they deserve in that moment. Like people deserve to be resilient in these moments. And that's what drives me crazy about a lot of gear companies is that they are not protecting their customer as much as the customer deserves to be supported and guided. Like we're talking about a potential life and death situation. If somebody's going onto your website and saying, I'm going to buy your gear because I think it'll, it would save my life. You better have good crap on your website, you know? So sometimes I, I just started to think like, I don't want us to have anything to do with that value set. I want everybody to be able to decide for themselves what makes them feel resilient. And hopefully they are finding companies and gear that will do that well for them and will, will show up for them in a really effective way in a disaster. Plus, I mean, with, with Terra Firma specifically, um, one of the things that I, when I was checking it out, I got a, a chance to, to check it out. Yeah. And, you got uh, a box. Yeah. yeah it's, it, <laughs> it's really, it, the level of detail is actually like, it's the level of detail, but beyond what you would expect. So it kind of fills in the blanks. Like the, mm -hmm. I thought that the, the pet stickers was interesting. I'm like, oh yeah. I mean like that, that makes sense. Wait, can I tell um, you really quick why I put that in there? Oh, 
Go for it. Yeah. Okay. It's awesome that you bring this up because um, somebody was like, why do you have a, why do you have pet stickers? Like who would leave their freaking pet if they're evacuating and say my pet's inside? Well, when Katrina happened, so many people had to leave their pets or their pets were up in the attics because they had run up there or they couldn't find them. Right. And sometimes you put a pet's, you would want to have a pet's inside sticker because you just can't find your pet. They freaked out. Like there's a sonic thing that happens that's overwhelming for pets when an earthquake happens, lots of disasters. And so they just freaking hightail it. So there was that. But this actually happened because I I had already considered that as being like, oh, maybe we should consider this. But then I looked at my black lab, Max, who was getting old and arthritic. And I was and he was big. Like this dog was like 85 pounds. And I thought. If there is a wildfire and we have to run, he can't run with us. And I thought, what would I do? Like, I, I don't, I was so conflicted. I could not imagine what I would have done. And I realized, no, this is a decision that would have to be thought through before there's ever a disaster. And I felt like that's what the Pets Inside sticker would force people to do. It would force them to say, why would I ever leave my pet? And then start to think, what would I do? So we, I might be in a position to have to have left Max in the house. And the only thing that would give me any glimmer of hope that he might be there when we get back is to put that sticker up. Because anytime there's a big disaster, the first crew that comes through is looking for people. The second crew that comes through is looking for animals. And it's a big community of people that come through to do that sweep after a disaster. And if you have that sticker on your window, Maybe your pet will be found. Maybe somebody will go into your house and not just knock, you know, so that there's a personal story behind every stinking thing that I put in that box because I just felt like these are human moments, you know, these are, this is such a human thing to go through a disaster. And how can I have something in there that makes someone feel like this is not all just going to be about trauma. <laughs> like there's some hopefulness in this situation because I know what to do and I've thought about it. Yeah. If you don't have the answer, something as simple as a sticker will make you think about it. Right. I wasn't expecting, I was expecting like, oh yeah, like, you know, like X, Y, and Z, but it, it seems like you put it in there. I mean, not specifically to trick the person, but to like get them like a gotcha. Now you have to figure this out. Well, this is all that resistance thing, right? To getting prepared. Like I just, I love psychology. And like I said, why do people do what they do and don't do what they don't do? That was always my test against everything that I was considering putting in the box was like, if someone is not going to do something, how do I make them think about whether they should do it? It doesn't have to be on my terms. It gets to be on their terms. But how do I engage people psychologically in this process of thinking about a disaster, which is really freaking hard to think about? It's uncomfortable. It's mortality, right? But it's also this, this opportunity to become really resilient before anything has happened. And there is a confidence and a calm that comes with building that before anything happens. And it's effective. When you get to tap into that in real time, that can save your life. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. I've never been in an extreme disaster. What I was actually going to say previously was like, oh, yeah, I want to look at the thunderstorms and snowstorms because those are the immediately the most like ones I've like I've been in that. And like 
it's you, you say like, keep a hat yeah. blanket. You already have those things. And that's already helpful because you're not, you're keeping people from getting more shit, which is just right. not helpful. When it comes to thinking about as a disaster, I've never been in a serious disaster. The only, and my, and when I think about it, my immediate reaction is like dystopian future, like looking like that, not even like disasters that have happened. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting even mm-hmm. being like, how do you, pre- I know it's like, I'm, I'm a nerd. <laughs> But, no, you're not. No, you're not unique in this. A lot of people think that. Yeah. Keep going. Uh, it, it's just it's it's interesting to like getting back to that that psychological part where it's like, what does this thing mean to you? What do you care about? I like the approach with the boxes. Like you get it's a choose your own mm-hmm. adventure. Here are the things that you definitely need to worry about. I mean, like the, the part with um a mailing address when you don't have one anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So let me, let me explain that because this was something that we learned from paradise. So a lot of people, um, what the feedback that we heard now, mind you, this was what we heard from victims. This is not necessarily what red cross would say is what they believe happens or how they, um, the structure that they've created. This might not reflect the structure that they feel they've created, but victims were saying, man, after a disaster, a bunch of these organizations come out to help us. Thank goodness. And then we all get in line and we fill out paperwork. And one of the first things it says on the paperwork is mailing address so that you can get an insurance check or we can send you information or you, we can give you this contract or whatever. And your house just burned down. Or you don't even know if your house is still standing or you're pretty sure it's completely covered in water. So being able to tell people as a planning step, hey, you need to have a backup address for like, and you need to memorize that thing. Like, where is your stuff going to go if you like the critical stuff, like a check, where is that going to go? Getting people to think about these things ahead of time and knowing that those were directly written by or directly informed by victim experience made us feel like, oh God, hopefully we're getting the right stuff. Maybe this is really going to help somebody. I mean, real life experience, it's hard to argue against someone who's like went through it. These Mm -hmm. disasters are once, maybe twice in a lifetime, hopefully, hopefully none, but like they're, it's like uh, not something that you would typically go through more than once, I guess. It depends on where you live. A lot of people live in tornado alley and some of, some people are like, why don't you leave tornado alley? Well, there's so many reasons why they won't leave Tornado Alley that are totally valid. They have just adopted into their lives this risk of catastrophe, but they're willing to do it. Like, this is another thing about the box is that, like, we're not here to tell you how much or how little these events should mean to you. It's up to you. Like, a lot of people are super comfortable with risk. Some people are not okay with risk at all. And being able to have a product that says like, do as much or as little as you want. It's okay. But it's always here. It's always, it's never going to rely on the internet or cell towers. It's here. That is so important. Electric free too. There's no, like it's, it's all education. Like you, you absorb the, uh, have you thought about, or I don't know how you would even do this, but like, have you thought about like talking to like FEMA and being like, Hey, like you have a lot of technical stuff. But here's, you mm-hmm. know, some kind of outside perspective that you can kind of get them on board with, like changing how. Well, 
No, but let me tell you why. From a scientific data-driven standpoint, we listen to them. They shouldn't listen to us. What makes, like when we were making the action plans, particularly that tell you exactly what to do. The first thing that we did is we looked at every legitimate, respected organization that people would go to. And we looked at what they said to do before, during, and after for wildfire. And then we said, why, what's the same and what's different? And why are these little things different? And then we went to disaster experts in that exact field. And we said, what drives you crazy about these discrepancies? Uh, what do you think is not here that should be? And then we infused into it this holistic sense of being able to talk to the whole person. Like we wrote it so that people can absorb it when they are scared to death. We wrote it, we chose color intentionally for calming. Like we don't use a lot of red on the product. I don't know if you noticed that, but typically everything emergency based is red, 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 red. And we chose a calming blue and we hardly ever use red unless it has to do with wildfire or volcano. And that's intentional because everything is just sort of about like the product needs to be calming because we already know that if you're using the action plans, shit's hit the fan. Yeah. You know what I mean? So as a, as a, as a private business that isn't an organization and that isn't a governmental agency, we have the flexibility to do a lot of that stuff that they don't. And we can have this nuance that they can't always do. And we can speak to someone emotionally in a way that they would not do because that's not their wheelhouse. And that's not something that they necessarily, like they can do some of it if they're speaking from a very concrete scientific stance, but we do it as though we are a warm, it's supposed to have my tone, you know, like it's supposed to sound like I'm comforting you. Yeah. And it's getting back to literally like what we were talking about. And um, I didn't even think we would get back to this point, the tones mm -hmm. in terms of like how you advertise or whatever you can be more real in a way that needs to, when you're talking about something like um, yeah. emotional, emotional or mental recovery, um, which is a nuanced thing. And it means different things for the different people, you know, that kind of, you can, you can navigate the gray areas, I guess in a way that larger organizations can't. Yeah. And there's a big bullshit meter for a lot of people who are out there trying to buy products to help them through this. Like hmm. I, we will never sound condescending. We yeah. will never have a tone of like do this or else we, it needs to sound like, okay. So I went back and forth for a long time. We actually have two taglines. You've got this is on a lot of the mm -hmm. product. And it's mainly because I, and it's not meant to be condescending. It's meant to be like, you've got this, like you're a human yeah. being, you're more resilient than you probably realize. And you can totally do this. Like you can, especially with all this stuff at your, in your hands. But the other one that we landed on for the company is be ready and be well, because those two things are just as important. Like each one is as important as the other. And we can't just keep telling people that all that matters is that you have this stuff or a few instructions. 
we need to tell them that they can, they need to take their emotional wellness seriously because it's really going to impact them after a disaster. You, you care more about your emotional stability after a disaster and your families than you do about whether your car is crushed. Yeah. And I mean, with even what you, what you just said, like stuff is stuff and in a disaster, you may lose all your stuff. So Mm -hmm. having the tools to be prepared in a more nuanced way to preserve lives and Mm -hmm. your livelihood as much as possible. I feel like that that's goes further. Imagine this scenario too. There's a wildfire nearby. You've been told to evacuate. You've been ordered to evacuate. And you stand outside of your house and you're looking at it and you're like, oh my God, I'm about to leave everything I own, everything I've ever bought, everything I've worked for. Photos. And paid for is in there, right? I did not want any customer who had this box to be in that moment and decide to stay. Think about that. Wow. Like, like a lot of people decide to stay and it's all because they didn't get prepared. It's all because they didn't make their home resilient with or without them to a wildfire. Like I always think I bring this up to my husband every now and then I'm like, shoot, we are definitely dropping the ball. Like I own a disaster preparedness company and I still struggle with this because it's so normal. But sometimes I look at our house and I think, nope, I don't feel good about leaving our house and in a wildfire yet. Like I'll do it. I'm pretty damn sure I'll do it, but I won't feel very confident in leaving it on its own. You have to make your home resilient with or without you there. It needs to be able to be there when you come back. And too many people stay and they, they fight the fire and try to protect their home or they stay in spite of there being a tsunami warning or they, they stay in spite of the governor saying this hurricane could be massive. You gotta go. Like there are, this is why preparation is so important because we want people to feel okay making the choice to save their life instead of save their home. And people really struggle with that and it's super normal. So again, this is where psychology comes into it. Like you need to prepare your home and you need to protect your life in a way that allows it to be standing with or without you there when you come back. Do you, do you think that what you've put together with uh, terra firma has, is this, is it something that you think is ever evolving even in terms of just how disasters are, are looked at? Do you think like you have like a pretty solid I mean, clearly the, the, the solid, the foundation is there. Do you think there is room for evolution? Yeah. Can it evolve? Yeah. 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 (laughs) We, yeah. I think about that a lot. And, you know, people who are business focused will say like, you need another product. You got to upsell your customer. Like you got to keep selling them shit. And I struggle with that sometimes because I'm like, you know, I kind of made the product that I just wanted them to all have. And I'm so happy every time we ship one out. I'm so thrilled because I, it kind of feels like this, okay, they've got it. It's going to meet them wherever they're at. Like it's okay. 
But the business person in me is like, yeah, that's stupid. You need to keep thinking about how this can evolve. So yes, the product can, the product itself always has the potential of evolving. Like we, we've made changes to the guidebook a few times because some new information has come out or researchers will learn something unique about volcanoes and we want to get that in there right away. So we change it for the next print. Um, that's always happening. And we listen to customers, but so far it feels like it's, it's so rooted in data that's not evolving typically. You know, we, we know a lot about earthquakes, right? Enough to keep ourselves alive typically. But there are things that are evolving really fast that we're still learning a lot about. But mostly that is terrorist attacks and <laughs> viruses like we're dealing with right now. Like, yeah. you know, those were two things that people said, like, are you going to put terrorist attacks in there? And are you going to do, you know, all the all these, toilet paper section? Yeah. And I was like, you know, we're just still learning too much about this. Like. This is constantly evolving and changing, and I don't want to have to reprint every time this happens. And plus, staying in disasters that are geology-focused and weather-focused, that, that felt more in line with the product. And there's terror when it comes to some of those other topics. And psychologically speaking, I wasn't certain we could meet that moment very well. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the, luckily, like you, you did tackle like the most common things that are, yeah. you know, nature is inevitable. Right. So it's like, this'll, this is everything that it seems to be gone over in uh, Tire Firma's grab and go box or each individual uh, piece of it seems to be things that like this, like it, maybe it'll change a little bit, but probably not enough to you know completely have to like change everything yeah I, i'd imagine as two things that i feel like i mean like it might take a while but like you know we're, we're clearly headed to space in a mm -hmm. colonizing way like that there, maybe there's something there and um even thinking like something i've been thinking about is like being able to like grow up my own food mm -hmm. self-sufficiency seems to be like something that can like mm -hmm. be a really nice couple to it yeah for sure. In the food section, one of the reasons that we, <laughs> I think I told you this, but like one of the reasons that we don't recommend just buying two weeks of dried packaged food, like backpacking food, is because they're super high sodium intentionally. Like there's a value to that when you're out hiking, working really hard physically. But when you're in the throes of a disaster and your nervous system is already erect, living on that kind of food for two weeks, is going to throw your GI into chaos and it can actually become one more thing to overcome when you really need things stable. And so in the guidebook, we talk about food and we talk about resilience when it comes to food. And one of the simple things that you can do is just start having extras of what you always eat and just rotate it out. Like always, always buy two, have one in your storage area, wherever that is, and then just rotate that forward into your kitchen and keep doing that so that you always have double what you normally have. And we have meal plans and shopping plans in there for 
how to do that specifically in a way that allows you to first use what's in your fridge and perishable and then move on to what's frozen and then move on to what's shelf stable so that you've got enough food for two weeks. I mean, I, I know that you, I've read this in a couple points in, um, I think it was the action plan. Mm-hmm. It, probably in all of them, but you know, people are dehydrated enough as yeah. it is without a disaster. And then, you know, introducing the adrenaline element. And yeah. if it's like, it's, that makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, that food is better than nothing, right? So like, this is where, it, this is where it gets to that funny gray area of like you, it's important for us to inform people that at a bare minimum, yeah, do that for sure. Bare minimum. And then as soon as you have time, do this because this will serve you better. You know what I'm saying? And that's, that's that educational, holistic educational piece that I wish more companies would get on board with. Um, and I'm not saying that they haven't, like a lot have, a lot have really figured it out. But um, it, I don't know. I guess I just, I really care about the customer. I know that a lot of businesses and companies really care about their customer and value them so deeply. And they do a lot of work on acknowledging that and finding ways to make sure that the customer knows how much they care about them. It's an important piece of the, gosh, when you own a business and you are doing something that's about helping people, you got to check yourself all the time. You got to make sure that you're looking out for them and not for you all the time. And yes, I have to balance that because the business can't help people if it's not surviving. But it's this this thing in disaster preparedness. I really would love to see all of these gear-based companies and food-based companies. I'd really love to see them help encourage people to understand holistically what really matters when it comes to preparedness and what will really help them recover or just react in real time, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it. That's that to me that almost protects, like you, you can rest easy knowing that. Cause like, this is, mm-hmm. you created something that not a lot of, I, I, I really don't think that there's anything specifically that's attacking like the mental and emotional aspects of disaster preparedness. So a, you have developed a thing that people need when people see, they'll be like, Oh wait, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Let's go pick it up. And then, um, you know, with that, I I think because of that, it's less like, it's less product driven, more passion driven. Yeah. So you, yeah, you, you keep your, that, that in and of itself to me is like the perfect check and balance to having a business. It's purposeful. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of power there. Yeah. How has this been received so far? Yeah. I think that, um, we we haven't had i think we've maybe had two maybe three instances of someone saying i don't value this this doesn't make sense to me and actually i can tell you something this is so interesting um we not only pay attention to that but we respond to that and how we like we made a bunch of um i won't go into the weeds on it we made some products to test whether they were worth having out on the market and somebody said, this doesn't work at all. And here's why. And I read it within an hour. And I said, 
oh my gosh, they are absolutely right. Pull it. And we, within an hour, pulled it off of every sales channel. And that was so valuable for us because we were moving fast to help people. And the content was was important. And they weren't saying that like what what you're telling us to do isn't important or isn't accurate. They were saying it doesn't work for me in this form. And here's why. And constructive. Yeah. And and you know, it was a negative review. So they were kind of like, um, it was constructive, but also kind of like annoyed because they paid for it, right? And um, and that happens and that's normal, but it was it's important as a business for us to respond, like really take seriously feedback. Like to me, negative feedback is so much more valuable than positive feedback, especially when it's spoken constructively, because it allows me to gather the data for saying, is that true? And if I think it's true, even for a second, my opinion has nothing to do with anything at that point. It's like, no, like this, a change needs to happen. And it feels great to be a business that can do that and not have a year and a half of red tape to get through or not have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on an entire team working to develop something. And now it's just all gone to crap, you know? That kind of ability to bend and move really quickly as a startup, I think, is one of the things that makes us work. Yeah, and you can honestly, at that point, you can turn on a dime. You have way more control over your uh, production because you're, yeah. you know, it's not like you're like mass producing or like trying to fill like, a, I don't know, like mm-hmm. the, just the elements of control make it, I guess, that much easier. Yeah. And we do it all in the US. Like we we had that sense of like it's important for us to do our best to keep this here in the US. But also we just I was like I want to be able to pivot fast. I want to be able to make changes fast because these some of these things are life and death and I don't want to wait 5 months for China or Mexico or wherever to be able to get me this thing that I can test again. No. I'm not that that really was comforting to me. This is a thing as a founder too. Like, you know, any, in my opinion, any good founder is always watching out for their crap and their biases and is always trying to make sure that their stuff isn't um, compromising the life of the business. Sometimes it's okay for it to do it a little because you can learn from the mistakes from that, but you got to watch for that. And I, I did try to set up the business for, uh, I protected the business from me from the beginning because that's what you really have to do when you're starting a company. Like you, you have to protect it from you and you from it, but you got to show up for it and learn when it's time to learn, but really you figure out how to utilize your best assets and your best parts so that you can help the business grow quickly. And that's been really cool to do. Was there any, um, I guess big big mistakes or any kind of like um, huge particular learning moments in uh, in that process. Yeah, I made tons. Um, like the disaster deck came out first um, with a different color coding, and then my friend 
she was like, yeah, this ain't working. And I was like, oh, tell me why. And she told me why. And it took five minutes. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so stupid. We have to completely redo this. And we hadn't gone fully out into the market yet. The box wasn't done by any means. Like we, we hadn't gone out. But I had manufactured the first round of decks. And I just thought, how did I not even think about that? That's so crazy. It took just that one time for me to say, I will not rush again. I will not rush. And as a result, it took a long time for this product to come out and it cost so much more money than I ever thought that it would. But it only took that one time for me to say, no, there, there, you know, a lot of founders get a lot of crap for trying to make too perfect a product when it first comes out. And I used to have to fight against my, some of the people on my board, not fight. We never fought, but I'd push back <laughs> and I'd be like, you know, this is a life and death product. I can't rush to the market on this. And I, I would not bend on this ever. And I said, I'm, I, if we have to spend more money and this takes more time, I have to take that risk because I will never forgive myself if somebody dies because I rushed the color coding system. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, something so simple. Yes, like why not take an extra month to make sure that if they're in fight or flight, it makes sense to them visually, you know? So I that one mistake turned into a business that could have taken a year to launch, took me almost three. And I ended up investing four times more in launching than I thought I would need. And as a result, I did not get to launch the product the way that I had hoped to from a marketing standpoint, because I really just invested all of it in being the product it needed to be. I want to really be clear. It was not about it being perfect. And this is a thing that founders get told a lot. When you're a creative, it's not, it's not always this sense. And I, I do identify as being a creative person. Perfectionism is not a thing for me. But I kept being viewed as being, as trying to make it perfect. What it really was is I was trying to meet the moment. I was, I was trying to show up fully and thoughtfully for this, this moment that had revealed itself to me as being worth asking people to put it in their hands to save their life. You know, like you got to meet that. And you have to do it with thoughtfulness and commitment and integrity. And my integrity and my thoughtfulness and my commitment level is going to be louder than perfection every day of the week. I could care less about perfectionism. But it, it, it needed to be never good enough. It needed to be correct. And plus you, ha- yeah. you have a vision with it. Like yeah. you, you had, it's, you know to to have this like deep of a vision with an an objective and compromise on it i feel like you'd be doing a disservice to yourself too yeah and and that's where it always i mean historically every creative founder runs into this because you have this vision and it's like okay do i stay true to that original vision do i bend yes you should do i um you know do when do I let data come in in a way that informs the creative process? 
Meg Chen, who I interviewed for the podcast, this is a thing that we talked about that's so tricky about creatives being the founders. You have to be able to wear those two hats. You have to be able to hold the creative vision while also listening to the data that's telling you to pivot. And if you don't have that ability, you better find somebody who does and who you're willing to listen to and who you trust because that the business will start to talk to you. The business will start to say, no, I need to be this. And I was really, I was listening really carefully. And it was saying to me, you'll never forgive yourself if somebody's life is lost because you move too fast. And I, it just was too loud in my head, no matter what anybody said. I was like, I'll never forgive myself. You got to understand. I'm a human. I'm not data. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's an outcome to this that's bigger than the bottom line of the business making money or how much I'm having to invest. So learning as a founder to really get good at that balance or finding someone who helps you create that balance is totally critical. Totally. Oh yeah. It's a make or break at launch. And I mean, it, I, I even like the way you put it. It's like, you know, it's maybe not even something that you can always find with yourself. I, mm -hmm. I'm lucky that I, I work with, um, Josh, because he's very, um, he's way more analytical than I am. Like I'm pretty rooted in the creative side of, of our business. So it, it's a really good, he, he brings me to back down to earth constantly. Yeah. Um, what, whether I like it or not. And I usually don't, yeah. but that's what I need. And that's okay. Well, and, and it's so important to always value that, like you leaving earth, like you brought up Mars for Pete's sake, like you leaving earth is critical. That process of letting your yeah. mind elevate up is critical to you making cool shit happen. And, you know, like, and that's so valuable, but yeah, once you find somebody who's really good at like saying to you, Oh man, I love that idea. Here's some data. And you're like, shit, you know what I mean? It's, it's really, it's all so valuable and it's all really, um, it's all worth feeding into the process. You know, it looks like we have time for one more question. Okay. Um, what is the best part about having started and running Terra Firma? Um, mm, so <laughs> this is a very emotional response, but um, I, I can tell you that I heard once that someone that I know, but don't really have a, they don't know me very well. I just know them. Um, they had, they had said to a neighbor of mine that I had given them a box. I had gifted them a box. They're older, um, probably in their sixties. And I just was excited for them to have one. It felt like giving one to my parents and they didn't open it because the wife felt that I was uh, ambulance chasing, essentially. And I thought, wow, that's so interesting. And I, I heard this and I realized how emotionally committed I am to not being that and how important it is to me to be in this really complex, really hard 
um, like it's very difficult to run a business like this. It's, it's, it has to be done well for obvious reasons. And to know that ethically I'm exactly where I want to be and I haven't compromised that at any point and that I value the customer as a human looking to feel more confident as opposed to dollars. That has been so fulfilling to me because when you're running a business, sometimes the money just really has to matter for a little bit. You've got to focus on it and you got to care about it. But I always come back to this thing of how grateful I am that I've created something that I know is helping people. And I feel completely good and clean about how I'm selling it to them. That's, that's been so fulfilling and rewarding and awesome as a business owner. Plus you're, you are filling in a blank in emergency preparedness that is very substantially a blank being filled. Yeah. Um, it's like, I'm, I, I always come back to it, but it's, it's, that's the part that to me is just like the most interesting, like the, the uh, mental and emotional part of emergency preparedness. So it, it yeah. even o- like opening that up, that conversation is like pretty profound. I know. And what's so funny is that like, that's not number one to me because that's like, Oh, I have ideas for problem solving all the time. You know what I mean? When you're creative, all you do is see opportunity for what could work better. And so like, yes, that was my goal a hundred percent. And I think we did it. And I'm so proud of that. But after launching and sitting with what it feels like to have full ownership of something like this and the responsibility of something like this, the emotional part is so much more, um, it's palpable for me, which is cool, but I definitely dig that we're the only people who did this. I dig it so oh, much. Yeah. I'm like, that, that never hurts. <laughs> yes. I'm like, yeah, we did. We, we saw this and women in particular get this thing. And they're like, yes, this is exactly what we have wanted for such a long time. I get that all the time. And that feels really cool. We don't really need cool. more knives. No one needs more knives. Yeah, like we got shit. Yeah. <laughs> we we got stuff around, but yeah, it's it's really cool. I'm really that's amazing. I love it. I love it. I'm very proud of it. Ah, that's incredible. Well, Allison, thank you so much for coming on. For the listener who wants to find out more about Terra Firma, maybe educate themselves a little bit on emergency preparedness, or listen to and find out more about She Founder. Where's the best place for them to go? So Terra Firma's website is Terra, T-E-R-R-A-F-R-M-A.com. She Founders is shefounderspodcast.com. And you can find us on Instagram too at shefounders or at Terra Firma Ready. Awesome. Allison, thank you again. It was great chatting with you. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you, Matthew. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Ready Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.